Welcome to Fostering Hope, a program that opens a door into the world of foster care and adoption, sponsored by Foster Adopt Connect. You'll hear stories from all facets of foster care, from kids who have experienced the system firsthand, from parents who are taking on the challenges and rewards of creating forever families for foster children, and from child welfare workers and policymakers who work within the system while also working to make it better. Besides hearing important stories, you'll learn how you can help society's most vulnerable children in big ways or small. Please welcome our host, the Youth Program Supervisor at Foster Adopt Connect, Nathan Ross. Welcome to Fostering Hope. I'm your host, Nathan Ross, here with my co-host, Liz Luce. Hi, Liz. Hello, Nathan. Hi. Uh, We are joined today with a national expert, Kim Stevens. Hello, Kim. Hi, Nathan. Hi, Liz. How are you both today? We're great. How are you? I'm doing really well. All right. And so for those listening who have been joining us over the last few weeks, we're talking this month about Child Abuse Prevention Month and the different things that are going on in our city, state, and country that are to prevent um, child abuse and neglect and to help those families heal. So, Kim, we'll go ahead and jump right in with you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what got what led you into the child welfare social services? Sure, happy to. Um, my husband and I married about 37, 38 years ago. Sorry, husband. 38 <laughs> years ago, um, knowing that we wanted to have birth children and we also wanted to adopt out of foster care. And in 1988, we began our foster adoption journey in Massachusetts. Um, at that point in time, we had two birth sons and we eventually ended up adopting two more sons. One was 15 when he joined us, and one was two and a half when he joined us. And we adopted two birth sisters who were six and seven when they joined us. Um, They're all over 30 now, um, grown, doing doing pretty well. Um, But my involvement in going through the foster care adoption process led me to want to do some work in the field. And so I went to school and got a degree in counseling psychology, thinking that I would meet other counselors that could help with my children's issues, um, and then went on to get involved in an advocacy organization in Massachusetts called Massachusetts Families for Kids, and that was looking at the issues that caused kids to languish in foster care, how could we be better partnering with the state to help move kids into permanent families or back home with their birth, original families, Mm -hmm. um, and I started learning an awful lot about how the system works or doesn't work and wanted to get more involved, so I started working at North American Council on Adoptable Children, which is a national group. We do policy work, advocacy, training, and support for kinship, foster, guardianship, and adoptive families. Okay, Um, and so, Kim, what was your understanding of the causes that led kids to come into care prior to adopting, and then how did that change as an adoptive parent? Because you, you said that some of that is what led you into getting involved with NACAC. So what were those experiences? Yeah, that's a great question, Nathan. So we were very young, and both my husband and I came from some pretty tough backgrounds and figured we knew something about growing up in a rough situation and maybe could help another child. Um, but what we didn't know was that oftentimes Kids come into foster care when they maybe didn't need to. Um, Like I said, we have four adopted children. Knowing my children's backstories started to get me really first 
curious and then angry. And then I met three of, um, three of my children's birth mothers and got to know more about them and suddenly realized that maybe, just maybe, my wonderful, deeply loved children could have grown up with their birth families. Um, so I started looking more into that and realized that there is a lot going on behind the scenes that causes systems to do not as good job as they would like to do. Um, not, sometimes they're not able to follow their own policies the way they'd like to. And sometimes our own cultural, um, socioeconomic, and just plain old biases cause kids to come into care at a faster rate than maybe they should or cause us not to provide the kinds of services to birth families that we would then maybe provide to foster or adoptive families. So in your years um, with your own children that you've adopted and then working in the system, have you seen a um, change in working more on the prevention services of, of working with those birth families? Like you said, you know, it could have been a possibility that they could have stayed with their birth family. Have you seen any shifts in the national perspective trying to work more with the biological families? So, Liz, that's another really great question, and I've seen numerous shifts. And essentially what happens with the shifts, they seem to come and go depending on what is the latest tragedy mm. or what is the latest sensationalized news story. And the pendulum swings back and forth between keeping kids home with birth family and then taking kids out of birth family really quickly, all depending on which way um, sort of the wind blows and what kind of decisions get made based on usually an outlying case. The other thing that impacts it a lot is the economy. So when we have a really strong, really robust economy, legislators, decision makers are more likely to invest in prevention services. But when the economy starts getting um, tight, when things are not going so well, two things happen that sort of cause a terrible perfect storm. One is that decision makers, administrators, legislators feel a need to cut services that are not critically needed. And so, of course, crisis services continue to happen, but prevention services may not. At the same time, when the economic downswing happens, poverty rises, family stress rises, um, and birth families' ability to keep their kids safe and healthy might lower based on the fact that they don't have the resources to do that. So you've got both a system that's not going to be helping poor families as much and poor families that are struggling because they can't make their own ends meet. So we've seen a real, like, rise in kids in care. In fact, the high of um, reported child maltreatment was in 1994. We had over a million reports. And at that time, um, you guys might not remember, but I'm quite a bit older than you, there had been a pretty significant slump in the economy recently. And the other thing that happened was there was um, an influx of methamphetamines being used. And so that combination brought a lot of kids in. 2014, those numbers declined down to 702,000 reports, but we're starting to see an incline again, and mostly due to the effects of opioid heroin abuse. So I have a quick question about something that you said earlier as well. You stated that you started uh, the adoption and foster process because you and your husband um, had sort of a rough background and 
and you felt like you could really assist with that. What do you think was uh, different in your lives that kept you from from making those same mistakes that others with rough backgrounds have with your children? What what services and help did you have? Another great question. Um, actually, I attribute, and my husband does as well, we both attribute one of the main reasons why we were able to not repeat a cycle was that we had strong support from our siblings. And in both of our cases, although our birth parents, um, my husband had a single mom. I had a mom and a dad. Um, all three of them struggled with different issues between mental health issues, substance abuse issues. Um, sorry about that. Between substance abuse issues and mental health issues and other things. And what happened that was different was that back then people were not so quick to pull kids out of families. So our parents did great things sometimes, not so great things other times. And being in a family unit, our siblings and ourselves were able to sort of find our way and help and help support one another. Um, I think systems now are quicker to intervene, and so kids lose the good pieces of their birth families um, in sort of an attempt to keep them safe from the bad pieces of their birth families. And I have to totally agree with everything you just said about the siblings part of it. I know growing up in a large family, uh, people would ask a lot, well, how do your parents have enough time for you? Well, uh, we had enough time for each other, and they gave us enough time. So I, I definitely understand the sibling relationship and how, how useful that is in a family dynamic. Mm-hmm. I agree, yeah. <clears throat> and so... Kim, part of that, when you talked about the siblings and having a system, um, you talked about how the system is sometimes quick to take kids out. On a nas- from a national perspective, how have some of the corrective actions that the system has tried to take impacted kids, both positively and negatively? So we hear people oftentimes talking about now, it seems like the, the government or the welfare workers just want to take kids. How has that looked um, across the country? Yeah, it, it's really troubling in a lot of places. Um, there's a few things that, that trouble me about it. Number one is that there's not really any uniform system to try to decide whether kids are safe at home or not. There are a number of people that have been working on evidence-based practices. Um, there are different assessment models. But what it comes down to for me as I look at it is that we oftentimes have young, inexperienced social workers who have gotten very, very little information in their schooling about foster care um, and about the whole child welfare system. So when you go to school for your bachelor's in social work or your master's in social work, you spend studies that um, are something like seven minutes are spent on child welfare, foster care, and adoption in your whole four-year career. Oh, wow. So we've got young people that are coming in that have not experienced being a parent, don't understand the stressors. Um, Many of the people that are working in the system are folks that come from sort of middle class. And so, Kim. Sorry, yeah. Oh, sorry. I have to stop you because we had to go to break. Um, But when we come back, we'll continue with that conversation of the work that's going into teaching our child welfare professionals when we return on Fostering Hope.
Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I'm your host, Nathan Ross, here with my co-host, Liz Luce. Hi again, Liz. Hello, Nathan. <laughs> and we are talking today with Kim Stevens, our national expert. Hi, Kim. How are you? I am well, thank you. So before break, we were talking about some of the things that lead to child abuse and neglect on a national level and what the government is doing. And Kim, you had talked about some of the lack of education for our social workers and child welfare professionals in terms of understanding child welfare. And so just wanted to know if you could help us understand that, wrap that part up for us so we can get into the bigger systems issues of how the government is responding to our child welfare needs. Sure. I think if I were just going to very succinctly um, make some recommendations, it would be that we would do a better job of both educating and supporting the folks that are on the front lines. They do an incredibly difficult job. They get blamed when things go wrong, and they almost never get rewarded when things go right because actually no one talks about it. Um, So, you know, they're doing a job that is kind of like acting like God, trying to make these decisions about people's lives, and they're up against it all the time with few resources and really not enough education. And so one thing that is happening is that more and more states, counties, and nationally we're looking at best um, practice models, evidence-based practice, and looking at some tools where we can better assess risk for kids so that we're not arbitrarily making decisions. And that's a really hopeful thing. And so, Kim, you mentioned something earlier that I thought was interesting, and you said you mentioned that uh, people in impoverished communities have a hard time, of course, when the economy is bad, abuse and neglect um, are increased. Is this a poor people's issue, child abuse and neglect? Is that something that is limited to just urban core, black poor families? Well, by the numbers, one would think so, because when you look at the numbers of um, reported rates of neglect, they are definitely higher for black, American Indian, Alaskan Native, and multiple race children. Um, their maltreatment rate is about 15.3 per thousand. Um, and then when you look at Hispanic children, it's 8.8 per thousand. And when you look at white, it's 8.4. There's two factors that are going on. One is that when people are impoverished, they are under much more stress than people who are not impoverished. There's another factor in that there is, in fact, systemic racism. Um, There are biases that people don't realize that they have. When when you're making an assessment about someone who looks different or has a different culture or different traditions, it's easier to find fault with their issues. But the other thing, and this I know for sure because I was, I was raised in a family that absolutely, um, if child welfare had come into my family, myself and my five siblings would have been removed. But my parents were a white married couple living in a pretty middle class to upper middle class neighborhood in a pretty nice town. Um, And they had all of that going for them, and they had enough resources that when they needed to, they could bail out and, you know, get some help, get Mm -hmm. this, get that, or the other thing. Raising my own children, I saw the same thing play out. I have a couple of kids that really struggled with different issues. One of my children um, had been born drug addicted, and as he became a teenager, he started using drugs himself. 
he would go, you know, he, he might get arrested and the police would treat him one way. He was an African-American kid. But when my husband and I would show up in court, the judge would look at this white middle-class family that had the resources to get a good lawyer. And mm-hmm. so he might not have to go so far into a juvenile justice system. His mom, on the other hand, um, who I know and have great respect for, didn't have those kind of resources and ended up losing her children because she couldn't call on a great lawyer or she couldn't present herself as a white, middle-class, two-parent family. She was a single mom. She was struggling with substance abuse issues and working to get herself clean. So she didn't have the same kind of leg up to be able to combat a system um, that at the same time, and she's struggling, a system that's worried about making a mistake. If they make a mistake, a child might die. Yeah. If a child dies, they're in big trouble. And so uh, with that piece, it sounds to me like because there are sy- systemic issues, um, I know that in some states there's a push to really privatize the foster care system and child welfare. And I, yeah. I got to admit, it makes me a little worried because I know especially when religious groups get involved in things, it kind of allows more people to use their own biases to establish abuse and neglect. So it sounds like it'd be really important for the government to stay involved. Is, do you agree with that? And how might that function work out for kids? Absolutely, I agree with that. You know, there's a couple of different places where there were privatized systems. And even when it's not um, a group that is guided by their religious principles or by some other value system, you know, once it's privatized, you lose a whole lot of government oversight. When you lose the oversight, you also lose the ability to make sure that your system is as equitable as it can be and is applied as universally um, and cohesively and consistently as it can be. So, for example, in Florida, they have a completely privatized system. And depending on what county or what town you live in, you're going to have a different community-based service that's going to care for you, your children, um, do any child welfare things. That means that from town to town, the way that services are delivered, the way that decisions are made, the way that children are removed or not removed from families can really vary greatly. And on top of it, as you suggested, and I have to agree, when you bring it into a religious context, it's you know, if, if you're growing up in an Amish family, for example, and the group that is running the privatized child welfare system um, is uh, one of the Protestant sects, you know, they may decide that the fact that in that Amish family children are not allowed to use electronics or not allowed to learn how to drive a car someone could make an assessment that that is a form of neglect. Mm. And that's based completely on a cultural norm that is not universal. So I have a question. I remember, in fact, one of the stories that really appalled me, and this is not about privatization, but just about cultural norms. When I lived in Massachusetts, there was a family that came to us for help. It was a woman from El Salvador who had lived in one dirt room with her four children. She moved to Massachusetts had an apartment with a kitchen, 
um, a bedroom and a bathroom and a living room, and she was at risk of losing her kids for neglect because the apartment wasn't big enough. But yet, for her, this was a path. Mm-hmm. Um, so, actually, I have a quick question for you, and I think I can probably ask the question, and then we'll have to go on break and then give you time to think about it a little bit. I wanted to know the effects of privatization, if that is something that, that happens nationally, if there was a child abuse or neglect report case and the child was reunified and they moved into another state or another area where there wasn't that federal oversight, what kind of issues could we see with, um, you know, not seeing what was reported in another state or another county and, and that continuance um, not being noticed because they've moved? So I, I want to give you some time to think about that. And um, Yeah, absolutely. And so, I, again, like Liz just said, I know we have to go to break, but that is a really good question that I also would like to hear when we come back. So uh, we'll give you some time to think about that. And when we return, we'll pick up with Kim Stevens, our national expert on what's happening systemically across all states for child abuse and neglect on Fostering Hope. Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I'm your host, Nathan Ross, here with Liz Luce, who has a question for our expert, our national expert, Kim Stevens. Hi, Kim. So I know before the break we were talking about the privatization of our child welfare system and and the uh, negative impacts that it has had. I'm sure it's had a positive probably, maybe. But the negative uh, that I see is maybe the lack of communication between states or counties to record child abuse that might have happened in one state and then they move to another um, and then they don't have that information. What have you seen um, from the national perspective? How, how has that affected the child abuse prevention that way? So that, that is a really big issue and a really good question. Um, and sometime back, um, there was a law passed called the Adam Walsh Law that was supposed to improve communication from state to state around child abuse and neglect reports mm-hmm. um, to really combat So a lot of what I've been talking about is how children are being removed unnecessarily, but there are a lot of children that really do need to be removed from someone's care for their own safety. When there is a family that is abusive or neglectful, oftentimes that family knows that people are watching them, and if they can move from one state to another, it can be quite easy to go under the radar because we don't have a good system for tracking that. So that autumn wash bill that I had um, just mentioned, that was passed by Congress, but it was never funded. And that's one of the issues that happens with many times good ideas. If the idea is passed, but it's not funded, it can't be implemented. So right now we have a country, a system, where if, for example, I get a speeding ticket in Vermont, and then I get another speeding ticket in Alaska, and then I get another speeding ticket in California, There's a centralized database that knows that I've now gotten three speeding tickets. And I'm going to be contacted by my insurance company, and my rates are going to be raised, and Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to be asked to go to a class. We have nothing like that for child welfare currently. And the closest thing that we have to it is when when the public agency is in charge rather than private agencies, because public agencies do have communication 
um, avenues, and they have ways of talking to one another and sharing resources that public agencies may or may not be involved in as well. And so, Kim, do you know why it's so siloed? Well, um, you know, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Um, I, I can tell you part of the reason, in my opinion, and, and I can't bear this out by fact, but it just seems to make sense, is just the way that the child welfare system was built. First of all, we didn't even have any system to address child abuse and neglect until 1874. And in fact, the only reason why it happened then was because some smart people came to the aid of a little girl named Mary Ellen McCormick, who was living in New York City. She, her mom was raising her after her dad died. Because her dad had died and her mom had to work, her mom put her into care with some neighbor that she knew. When mom lost her job and couldn't continue to pay the neighbor, the child went into the public welfare system. It wasn't a child welfare system. It was just public welfare and was significantly abused, battered, put into forced labor by her foster parents. Somebody came, she came to the attention of some folks. They tried to go to court to try to do something about it, and it turned out that there were no laws to protect children from abuse. So they looked to a law that had been passed first in England in, I believe it was 1824, that was um, the start of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Mm. So in fact, we cared more about animals for a good 50 years before we had the same level of care for children. And so after Mary Ellen's case came before the court, they did establish the first Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children in New York City. And I believe in Massachusetts, um, they were the second one to, to come up with that and to you know, get on that bandwagon that children should not be abused. And, and so we know that... Um child abuse prevention is hard to prove in terms of its effectiveness. Um, mm -hmm. How does that, um, the fact that it's hard, how does that help or hinder the coordination of services between state systems in terms of making the child welfare system better for kids? Right, and, and that goes back to this whole issue about um, when funding is cut or when you know, political will is such that we expect people to, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps and mm -hmm. take care of themselves. When we separate ourselves and become isolated, what happens is prevention services are cut in part for exactly what you raised, Nathan, the fact that you can't really prove a negative. So trying to do some evaluations can be really tough, but there are some amazing programs that have been able to look at the way that we are doing service delivery and are being able to show effectiveness. They're being able to take a cohort that go into this program and look at the cohort that was just like them that didn't have the program. Um, and I'm happy to tell you about a few of them. One is this Magnolia Community Initiative that's in L.A. County. And I've done work over the years with the Children's Bureau of Southern California, and that's who owns and runs this particular um, initiative. I've been to the building for some child welfare issues around foster care and adoption. But in this place, it's a huge building, beautiful, friendly, welcoming building. 
And in that building, there are 75 different partners that provide services and employment. Um, there's school systems. There's all kinds of folks that are uh, represented in that building. So it's a one-stop shop for a group of people, about 110,000 people that live in a five-square-mile radius. They will come in for one thing, and everybody that works there is, is told you need to ask three questions that get to families' well-being. And if something comes up in an answer where you can tell that they could perhaps use another service or another hand or another person on their side, you do what's called a warm handoff. And you literally take them from the desk where you're sitting and chatting with them and introduce them to the person who's working in that next program that you think they could use. So rather than falling through the cracks, these folks have a community surrounding them that is warm, that is respectful. Um, the needs are driven by what the family identifies. There's another one that's in Salem, Oregon, that uses a neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor, um, support. They have trained neighborhood connectors. Um, it's a very large Hispanic community. And so it's Spanish-speaking people that they have um, that they have recruited to this program. They have something called the community cafe classes, where people can sit, respectfully share ideas and opinions, issues and challenges, and they have folks that help them walk through how they can advocate for themselves and their kids. They're given parenting classes if they need them. Um, they're taught or supported in doing educational advocacy. And they have found that their foster care population has cut down from 1,000 people one year to 500 the next year. And then they were able to take the money that they saved in foster care in their community and reinvest it in prevention services. Wow. So, yeah. So it can be done. It takes a community, though. And, and so... You mentioned the the first place that they had a bunch of different community supports involved in one building, and yes. you mentioned the school system. So does the school system have a role to play in child abuse prevention? Oh, my gosh. The school system has a tremendous role to play. They are the people that see our kids six hours to eight hours a day, 180 days a year. That, for many kids, is their safe haven if they mm -hmm. actually are at risk. Um, but the other piece is that, again, our educators, uh, teachers, even the, the cafeteria lady, even the custodian in the school, they all need to be able to recognize the signs. And the other piece of it is to know what is out there in terms of community services and to know that it's okay to reach out to people in need without judgment. I think underneath all of the pieces that I've ever seen that work really well, they are all built on a respectful partnering relationship with the family. What families need is not for us to come and do things to them, but for us to partner with them, together figure out what the need is, what the challenge is, what the barrier is, and then work together with those families to figure out the best next step. And that way, you can see remarkable things. When I worked at the place in, in Massachusetts that I worked in, we did a lot of cooperative meetings with birth families who were at risk of losing their children. And once they were given the ability to speak up for themselves and to be heard and to have their opinions respected and supported, 
you saw a big turnaround in the way that they were able to parent their children and the way that they were able to advocate for themselves. So do you see a correlation between families being able to stay together when we're not using the judgment so much as as wrapping the services around them? Absolutely, absolutely. And and I can tell you, even as an adoptive parent, you know, it's not always easy. There were days when I really questioned whether or not I was doing a good enough job, whether or not, um, you know, I was any better a parent than the parents that, that my children had had. And I can tell you, when those hard days come and you look at yourself in the mirror in the morning, you're brushing your teeth, and you're thinking, what a jerk you are, mm-hmm. you don't feel like you can ask for help. And if you can't ask for help, things can get worse and worse. Absolutely. And so I know we have to go to our, our last break. When we come back, I do want to touch on one last thing with the school systems and just their involvement, because it seems like there might be an opportunity that exists. Um, so I want to know from your perspective how the school systems are affecting our children on a, on a national level. So when we return on Fostering Hope, we'll conclude this segment on the national perspective of child welfare, of the child welfare system. Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I'm your host, Nathan Ross, here with Liz Luce, my co-host. Hi, Liz. Hello, Nathan. We've been talking today with Kim Stevens, our national expert on child welfare system and specifically different things that are happening with child abuse and pre- child abuse prevention uh, models across the country. So, Kim, before break, we were talking about the school system and um, the role that they have to play. And so we just want to know if you could, uh, again, wrap up with that. How are schools working collaboratively? collaboratively with kids who are at risk and families who are at risk. And also, do you believe that there's more that they can do to help with child abuse prevention? Sure. So um, one of the things that I'm seeing that is really great is that a lot of schools are looking at um, trauma-based systems, trauma-based responses, knowing that children, lots of people, not just children, but people experience trauma in their lives and that that impacts their ability to learn their ability to engage with others, and that oftentimes what we used to see as behavior issues or as bad kids is really just a child who is struggling with some kind of a trauma, whether it's at home or out in the community. So schools are really responding to that more than ever. One of the people that I want to elevate that I think does a remarkable job of taking um, out-of-the-box thinking is Molly McGrath-Tierney, or Molly Tierney-McGrath. I think it's Molly McGrath-Tierney. She is the um, Child Welfare Commissioner for Baltimore City, Maryland. And they have established a really great way of doing a lot of different things. They've reduced their numbers of kids coming into care. But she has managed to form a partnership with the school systems in Baltimore where the schools trust the department enough to know that they're not just going to come and swoop in and take kids if they have some suspicion of risk for a child, but that they are there to be partners with families to try to help keep kids safe at home. And so at this point in time, what she was sharing when I saw her in Albany, New York earlier this year, was that they are now able to partner with the school system to give them a heads up if they're concerned about a child, if they think something might be up for that kid, 
and then the Baltimore City Public Welfare, Child Welfare Department, can reach out to the family and say, hey, is there something we can do to help? Real different turn on things because um, what people may not know is that public child welfare has a two-pronged mandate, and those two prongs are actually in competition with each other often. On the one hand, they are supposed to protect children from harm, and on the other hand, they're supposed to preserve and support families. And it's kind of hard to do both things. And that, again, speaks back to that pendulum swing that I had spoken about earlier. Um, the other piece of that is that where we are seeing some great work. You know, we were talking in the last little segment about public agency versus private agency. What the private agencies are really great at is having the ability and the wherewithal to do some pretty innovative things. So, for example, trauma-based work, um, adverse childhood experiences and, and addressing some of those things. The programs that I was talking about, like the Magnolia community um, work and the one that's in Salem, Oregon, where you've got neighbor to neighbor helping each other out, those are all private agencies that have been able to start those um, and find funding and find the wherewithal to keep them going. So they are great partners. But in terms of child protection, that's where we really want to make sure that it's still a public agency with public oversight so that we know that we're being consistent and fair across the board. Not to say that we can't do improvement because certainly, you know, we heard in the very first part that the number of children of color that are in the system is much higher and proportionately disproportionate. Um, but at least we are, we've got one system that can kind of look at the whole thing. And so you mentioned a few models that, that are effective across the country and talked about how important private organizations are in being innovative. What can a person who isn't connected necessarily to a private child welfare organization do? How does a everyday person get involved in making a difference in our community across the board? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is know your neighbors. Get to know your neighbors. Walk out your door. Say hello. You know, find out who's there. Don't be afraid to be connected to people. Um, I remember when I was pregnant with my first child, I was in a grocery store with my mom, and I saw a child with a bruise on their face. And I looked at my mother, and I said, I can't believe that poor kid, his mother's beating him. And my mother said, you know what? I'm surprised at you to be so judgmental. You have no idea what happened to that kid. Maybe he fell down. If you're concerned about it, why don't you go over and say hello? And it was the best piece of advice that I think she ever gave me just about how to be a human being in this world. Um, we don't know about other people, but we do know how to communicate. We know how to reach out. We know how to be present. Volunteer in the school. Volunteer as a coach. Volunteer, you know, anywhere you can. But most especially, get to know your neighbors. Say hello to them. Make yourself available to people and above all, don't judge people. If you're curious, ask a question. You know, um, if, you, if you think that they might need some help, rather than assuming that there's something evil going on, say, hey, would you like a babysitter? Do you need a break? Hey, could I help you out with a casserole? Hey, I noticed that your kiddo is really rough getting on the bus in the morning. That must be hard for you. Could you use a cup of coffee? Because almost almost universally, child abuse 
happens because people are stressed out and at the end of their rope. It is not planful. Um, it's most often not happening all the time. When you look at the statistics, neglect is what gets kids into the child welfare system more than anything else. Um, I was looking at some of the numbers around child um, maltreatment reports, and abuse is really quite low in comparison to other things. So we're constantly worried about, like, the big issues, but mm -hmm. it's the day-to-day -day that we can, as citizens, make a difference in. And I think that's so important, Kim. I, uh, what we've heard in all of our segments that we've done this month is the need for people to get involved in their community. And I just, I think it's it's so interesting that all of our guests have said that, especially because we are a society that we're, we keep to ourselves. I mean, people are moving out into the suburban areas where they can have a house with land and they don't have neighbors that they can hear and we aren't necessarily talking to people. I'd like to speak to that. Even in that situation, I've educated our, our Homeowners Association Facebook page yeah. uh, to let them know what they can do to help. So even if you're not going to their door, you can still be in communication. Yeah, I think that's, that's so important. And also, you know, what I've heard from you and from all of our other segments is the need to report that you shouldn't get discouraged from saying something if you feel like there are some additional interventions um, necessary. And so I know that can be scary for people sometimes to think I'm going to get this family in trouble if something isn't actually wrong. Um, but I mean, I guess for you, have you found it to be an important thing to still do? Oh, absolutely. In fact, there was a young man that I was working with at one point in time um, when I was doing direct service. And I had developed a really great relationship with both him and his mom. There came to be a point where I was going to have to report. But I talked to her first, and I explained to her why I had to report, and she was okay with it. But, it's, you know, as scary as that is to make that, that kind of a conversation, when you talk to someone first, in many cases, if you talk to them, you'll find out, well, maybe I don't have to make that phone call. But if I do have to make that phone call, personally, I want to be upfront about it. I don't want to go behind someone's back because... I want to be able to also say, and I'm here for you. And that's that's so important. And that's so important. Thank you so much, Kim, for your time and for all the advice that you've given us today. Um, I think that we've learned a lot from you and from all of our other um, hosts. And so you've been listening to Fostering Hope brought to you by Foster Adopt Connect. To get involved with our agency and help other abused and neglected children, please visit us on our social media, our Facebook page, or fosteradopt.org. Thank you. Thank you.